In a nutshell, I got a sponsor and worked the steps. I, I, I did for many years not do that in AA, and I don't suggest that approach. And, and probably what led to that was just finally getting desperate enough to be open to suggestions. You know, some people are like that right when they come into AA, no matter how bad the bottom, and, and other folks like me are slow learners. And the other thing I would say is you, you can't do it wrong and you can't change the way you've done it. I spent a lot of time feeling bad about beating myself up for not staying sober. Right. And that's just not productive. That's another thing my sponsor always encouraged me to share. He said, every time you share in a meeting, it should come out of your mouth that it took you 10 years to string together the sobriety you have now. Right. Because you're not the only one. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hey, everybody, that was Matt R. that you heard a sound clip from on the beginning of this episode. I'm calling this episode Recovery, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. You're going to hear Matt R. discuss uh, many escapades in his life. We're going to start out talking about the time he was uh, kidnapped by some hookers. Yes, uh, that is a true story, and we're going to discuss that. Um, Matt's going to talk about his time as what he called uh, the male version of Oprah. Um, He's also going to talk about how he got from the dark days of that summer of 2007 up to his sobriety date. He'll be sharing about uh, the 7,000 square, excuse me, the 700 square foot apartment uh, that he had in uh, Haight-Ashbury. And he's going to talk about his family and uh, the discovery of new joys uh, in his life today in sobriety. Just a real quick program note. I just wanted to let you know, I don't know exactly what to do with it yet, but we do have a Twitter account. Yes, I have entered the land of Twitter. Uh, the uh, handle on that, I guess is what you call it. Handle, is that the proper word? Anyways, at sober underscore speak at Sober underscore speak. Believe it or not, Sober Speak was already taken, so that was the one we had available. Enjoy this episode with Mr. Matt R. So we're sitting here with Mr. Matt R. Hello, Matt R. Hello there, John. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Glad you're here. Um, Matt R., I kind of know, I, I think of Matt when uh, I see him or hear from him as a guy from Northern California, right? That's right. And yeah, what, what part of Northern California did you uh, come to the great state of Texas from? We lived in Redwood City before we moved here, but I lived in San Francisco for 13, 14 years. Before that, 20 years altogether between Berkeley, San Francisco, and then Silicon Valley. And what brought you to Texas? Was it a job or? My job, yes. Gotcha. My company's based there, but we have a 
business here. So I moved here to join that business a couple years ago. All right. So I've heard I've heard bits and pieces of your story. I actually heard you tell your story one night. You did a fantastic job with it. And that's why, in fact, we were leaving that night. When I say we, my wife and I were both in attendance at that, uh, you telling your story. And my wife said, uh, man, you got to get him in. He did a really good job telling a story. And my wife has a lot of influence in my life. So <laughs> thus, you are, thus you are here. Uh, <laughs> you do know how that goes. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, uh, what, here's what I want to do, right? I'm going to start with a story <laughs> that you actually ended up your talk with, which you didn't really dive into, uh, but I found it very interesting that you even mentioned it. And we'll just go get right to the good stuff here. So at the end of your story, you mentioned that at some point during your drinking days, so to speak. By the way, uh, this is, and, and this never fails, all the people that sit across from me, right, they, in my opinion, we alcoholics blend in very nicely to society. You wouldn't even know that these types of stories exist. But you did say right toward the end of it, you said, oh, there's one thing. I did get kidnapped by a hooker, but I don't really want to go into that right now or something of that. Or we did, or you ran out of time or something like that. So let's just go right there. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, I say I throw you the hardball right off the right off the bat. No problem at all. Ten years later, it's finally funny. Yes. <laughs> For many years, it was not funny. It was an expensive long weekend and very shameful and embarrassing, as you might imagine. But yeah. now I can laugh at it. And one of the the stories about it, one of the derivative stories, it, it literally took me years to talk about it, even to therapists, even to the good friends that knew what happened and knew the trouble I was in right around it, kind of knew about it. But even to those folks, it was a very sore subject for a while. And I finally got up the guts to talk about it in a men's meeting in San Francisco. And I just, I was literally crying. I just threw it out there. And I can't tell you how many folks came up to me afterwards and said, something like that just happened to this guy. I know another person who that happened to. We all believe it was the same people. So just one correction. It was, it was hookers plural. So who were billed to me, if it, if it makes sense, I'm not here to make excuses, dancers, air quotes that people can't see. But long story short, what would happen to me towards the end of my drinking, I would go long stretches without drinking, sometimes a month, sometimes two months, sometimes six months, sometimes 18 months with no spiritual fitness, no program maybe just a little bit of therapy, maybe a quick two weeks of outpatient rehab, and then I would just kind of hold on and hope for the best and not drink. Usually what happened over that, unfortunately, 10-year stretch of my half-hearted attempt at sobriety, I would end up drinking for the last time again. Every time I drank for almost 10 years was the last time. Again. So what happened towards the end of that, every time I drank, I said, well, it's the last time. What's Not what's the harm in another drink, what's the harm in another day? of drinking right. until I black out and something terrible happens. Right. And so this just happened to be one of those terrible things that happened. And often I would go looking for entertainment in a pretty seedy part of San Francisco. Right. It was only six or seven blocks from the apartment I lived in where I did most of my drinking towards the end. And I was like a walking billboard. When I walked into that neighborhood, people were aware of of the the type of things that I was looking for and they were offered to me freely. And I would end up in establishments that I shouldn't have been in, spending money and getting money taken from me. Happened more than once, I'm ashamed to admit. The uh, the big book refers to it, I think Bill referred to it as a seeking out uh, 
uh, seeking out solace or something like that in sordid places, I yes. believe is what is said, right? So, I In a sordid place full of lower companions, and <laughs> I felt right at home there when I was in the middle of one of these two, three, four-day benders. And so I was in one of these places and uh, came stumbling out to visit the ATM machine, and it was... I was blackout, wobbly drunk at 3, 4 in the afternoon mm-hmm. on, I believe, a Saturday at that point. So I was probably day two, maybe three, into a, a bender here. And the next thing I know, a, a car full of women pulls up, and, and they just said, hey, do you party? <laughs> so they had been probably scoping me out for a little while as I was struggling to get money, and I was struggling to find what I was going to do next, and I was just kind of strutting around the corner, kind of wobbly, head on a swivel. And, well, I just answered honestly, sure, I party. And so I, I did, I made the worst decision of my life. I got into that car with these people that just pulled up because they had drugs, because they had alcohol. And that turned into a, a three-day ride from there where, without sharing every detail, they brought me to casinos and wiped out my ATM card. They ran out my credit cards. They uh, brought me out and used my cards to buy their weekend uh, barbecue food. They actually, the, the whole kidnapping part was I ended up just going along with them on their July 4th weekend vacation right. to this place called Lake Berryessa near Napa Valley, which even still saying that word, I just got a little weird feeling in the pit oh, of my wow. stomach. Yeah, And it's one of the places, if you've ever seen the Zodiac Killer movie, the first victim of the Zodiac Killer was found at Lake Berryessa. <laughs> I remember watching that movie and thinking, that's terrible, but boy, I'm, I have a worse story about Lake Berryessa. No offense to the person who was murdered, of course. <laughs> And so I was literally just up there, out of my gourd on drugs. They were, they were, there were, there were drugs that I wanted to be ingesting, and then there were drugs that they were basically giving me pills. So I was just incapacitated for for a good two days in this cabin. Ended up getting back to the Bay Area, longest car ride of my life, with just one of their friends who left early and was was um, not well enough to drive. It was a scary couple of hours getting back to the Bay Area, and and just had my tail between my legs for, for 10 days. I couldn't look in the mirror. I couldn't look in the mirror. The most painful thing about that has nothing to do with all the crazy stuff that happened and the money I lost and the, the police report I tried to, to file. <laughs> usually, that was a funny conversation that yeah. has to be recorded somewhere. <laughs> so, whoa, 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 back up, son. What were you doing in that neighborhood? Well, well, well back up, son. <laughs> they made you do drugs? Well, back up, son. And... Uh, at the very end of that long conversation with the San Francisco police, he said, you know, I think this is just a very expensive lesson. Mm-hmm. And no police report was taken. Right. And, and I was just kind of hosed. And, and the weird thing was I, I had these women's contact information. Right. At the beginning of it, we were just kind of party friends until they realized they could really take advantage of me. So I even tried to follow up with them. I couldn't let this go for months. Yeah. I would toss and turn as I tried to go to sleep. and like, how am I going to get some of that money back? Should I lie to my credit card company or... Maybe I'm telling the truth to my credit card company. I was just tortured right. by the events that happened for, oh. for really years. And, and ultimately, it was a very expensive lesson. It's now a funny story, <laughs> <laughs> memorialized on the internet, I guess, for, for better or for worse, hopefully for the benefit of others. That's why we share. That's I right. Mean, ultimately, that's why I, I shared it. My sponsor said, look, it's, It'll help it's others. not about you, and it's there to help right. others. All you have is your story. Right. And this story is actually pretty funny, so you need to start getting over yourself and telling it a little bit. Right. No, no, it's great. And, you know, and, and it's the truth. And I tell people when they come into here, uh, just try to be, like we talked about before this, just try to be as genuine as you can. Try to be as vulnerable as you can. And that is what comes through on these podcasts in spades. So, all right, thanks for 
for sharing that. So, well, and then, so I'm assuming right after that, you got into AA and you've been happily living happily ever since. Is that what happened? That's an interesting assumption. <laughs> as, uh, I do identify as a real alcoholic, so I wish I yeah, could Yeah, by say. the way, let's just go ahead, and uh, <laughs> I usually have people give their sobriety date Sorry. and their name at the front, so your yeah. name and sobriety date I'm is? Matt R. I am an alcoholic, and sobriety date's December 1st, 2008. Okay. The story that I just shared was from the summer of 2007, and um, I could count them if I thought hard enough. There were another four or five, two, three-day benders like that. Mm-hmm. That happened before I got sober for good, before December 1st, which became the sobriety date that I, I still have in 2008. So let's go back then before 2000, uh, before uh, 2008, or even before that story. Uh, obviously, there were some other things, you know, it's not like you just end up uh, in the middle of a story like that. There's usually a lot of stepping stones that get you to that point. What do you want to share about, uh, I guess, you know, both growing up and, you know, kind of what got you to that point, um, you know, from your past? Obviously, you grew up in Northern California, sounds like. Is that right? I actually moved there after college. I grew up in Ohio, Southwest Ohio. So a couple of different small towns in Ohio. My dad moved around a little bit. He was a teacher. My mom was a social worker, so we didn't have to worry about money. We didn't have a lot, so there's just nothing to worry (laughs) about there. But always comfortable, always a good life. My dad was an alcoholic. My Really my whole family, my mom's side of the family too. She didn't drink much, but she, my mom had the tendency to go overboard the very few times that, that she did. She did drink a little bit more later in life, but all my uncles on my dad's side, many folks on my mom's side. So I saw it growing up. I, I knew that mom's dad, grandpa was an alcoholic, and that just meant he didn't show up when he said he was going to show up, that mom was upset when she did see him when we came home. And I didn't fully understand that when I was eight, nine, ten years old. But it became clear to me that drinking wasn't a good thing. And actually in high school, I was, if I did live in California in high school, I would have been a straight age kid. I was, I was against drugs. I was against alcohol. And I didn't drink a drop the whole time I was in alcohol. How about that? And so I made up for lost time soon after. <laughs> Sounds long story like short, I lost a bet playing golf and, and ended up drinking two peach wine coolers. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me, I thought. And how old were you in that? Almost 19. I was still 18, but about to turn 19 and go to college. This was the summer before college. And, and I just hit the ground running. I, I, by the time I was at college a month later, it was as if I had been drinking my whole life. And so there was, uh, that was my period, sort of 18 to 23, 24. I, I drank every day. And different things happened, good and bad, but basically I, every day, blacked out, passed out, and, and wet the bed. That's just the kind of alcoholic I was. So there was shame and issues and a little bit of trouble and hospital visits from just my first year or two of drinking. Wow. So you got it. So like you said, you made up for lost time. Um, okay, so let's talk about the years then between your college and then that 2008 incident. Is there anything in there that, uh, I, you know, let's talk about relationships where you I, I know you're married now, right? Yes. And you've been married now for how long? It'll be five years in October. Five years. Uh, any Anything that was going on back in that period you want to uh, um, talk about? Well, in the, in the early days, I, I went pro after college. I worked for Anheuser-Busch. I can't remember if I mentioned that when you, when you saw me speak. but that You was, went pro. That was the perfect job for a practicing alcoholic who's 22, 23 years old. And oh, yeah. Not only that, that job took me to Las Vegas. I lived in Las Vegas for, for six months. And that is, while there was some fun times, that's where I, I really crossed over to the dark side. I, I was leaning there, I would say, 
junior year of college on, there were three good nights, two bad nights kind of thing, and, right. and depression really starting to, to creep right. in. And, so that's what you mean by the dark side for you, yeah. the the depression kind of creeping right. over you? And uh, describe, I mean, because a lot of people can relate to that. What do you mean by the, the depression? How did that manifest itself in your life? Well, I was able to shake off, didn't always feel very good, but I could shake off hangovers, you know, even early smaller bouts of depression I had when younger panic attacks you know to me it was just well I'm having fun this is part of the wreckage of having some fun and I know how this goes I've seen my uncles drunk and happy and I've seen my my uncles hungover and miserable so I know there's a miserable side to it but I could always bounce back physically and mentally and by four or five o'clock be doing the same thing the very next day and sometime around the age 21 22 23 I already couldn't do it I just wasn't hanging in there, even physically. I was a, an athlete in high school in really good shape, and by the time I was chain-smoking at age 21, I uh, at the end of my Anheuser-Busch stint, I weighed almost 300 pounds. Really? And I was another uh, funny story, I guess now it wasn't. Now, I'm, you know, people can't see you when I'm looking at this, but I can't even <laughs> imagine yeah. you. At, oh, you don't even look that. So, but you were 300 pounds. Yeah, 285. I actually had the thought, like only an alcoholic could have this way. Well, I'm, I'm this fat. Why not get another 15? Why not hit 300 <laughs> before we start losing it all? Right. And, and it's funny. People ask, well, how did you lose all that weight? Because basically in a summer, I went from 285 to kind of 220-ish, which was my, my drinking weight. And, uh, <laughs> Your drinking weight. I, I, I switched to Bud Light. I still worked for Anheuser-Busch. And I ate almost exclusively because all my meals were out. We were in bars doing promotions, doing marketing. And so I switched from eating all fast food, all bar food to Subway. And this was before, this was pre-Jared. Pre-Jared. So you could have been the guy. And so two years later, when Jared became Jared, I was like, oh my goodness, why didn't I write a letter? I could have, now I'm glad I didn't end up. <laughs> right, like Jared, right? That's Where another Jared story. Ended up, but different story for a different day. But there's, there's some relief there. But I was definitely the, the male Oprah, kind of up and down. And it was all tied to my, my, my drinking. Because when I drank, I made you all were, kinds of bad decisions, dietary the, and otherwise. You were the male Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right, so you're, so you're going up and down in weight. You're kind of moving along here. You're working on your story. Um, so, and this was all in, I'm sorry, was that all in Ohio still? No, I was bouncing around. So I went to school in Chicago. Okay. And then I moved to Northern California with uh, Anheuser-Busch, and I, gotcha. I moved Sorry. around a little bit from there. So I lived in Vegas. I lived in St. Louis. Yeah. I ended up back in Ohio, kind of a classic bottom I probably talked about when you heard me share where I lost that job with Anheuser-Busch. was actually fired for drinking from Anheuser-Busch, which <laughs> it's still hard. amazes people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> still amazes me. I still don't understand how that happened. Lost my girlfriend at the time, who was my college girlfriend, and... We had been together in the Bay Area. It was actually one of those where I would tell people she was my girlfriend for about a year after we broke up. And every now and then I call her and she's the sweetest girl in the world. And she's screaming at the phone, I am not your effing girlfriend. I haven't been for a long time. But I love you, but we, I don't care. So, we have a hard time letting go. Yes. Huh? I, had, I had some denial going on there. And I ended up living in Ohio with my alcoholic dad. No job, no money. You say your dad is alcoholic. Did 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 he, um, did he ever find sobriety by any chance? He died of this last year, so a little over a year ago. Wow. And he he did for a little bit. It got bad enough. Boy, this was seven or eight years ago, where mm. he ended up in the hospital. He ended up in detox, and he and he tried. He tried AA for a couple of years. He was never really. 
he never took to it. He never really wanted to stop drinking, which I can certainly relate to. Mm-hmm. He just wanted the bad stuff to, to stop happening, and his health issues ended up catching up with him. Wow. That's sad. Um, did he have others around him when he passed away? Were there, or did he have any you know, friends and family left, or did he kind of drive them away for the uh, most he part? He was very much a loner. Mm-hmm. And so my brother lived near where he lived. My uh-huh. dad was back in Ohio. And my brother, he took care of both my mom over the years that she had Alzheimer's, passed away a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and then was also there taking care of my dad. And, it, you know, it was tougher. When you're an alcoholic, it's, it, the perception for some people is, that, hey, it's self-inflicted. So if you're caring for somebody with Alzheimer's, this poor person, there's nothing they can do. You'll do anything for them. If, if the help someone needs, like my dad is, hey, come over and help me get up off the floor so I can drink some more. Right. There's a little less, I have plenty of empathy for that situation, but... That also took a toll on, on the family he had left that was taking care of him, my brother. Right. So, you know, other than that, his good high school friend was there, but he was pretty lonely at the end and, you know, just passed in the middle of the night, walking into the kitchen, fell over, and that was it. Could you see yours? Like, so when you were describing uh, um, your uh, drinking, um, I, it made me think of that when I was in that sort of phase myself, I could see myself becoming... Um, something that I didn't want to become, mm-hmm. and I was becoming like the people that were around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have any sort of gut instincts like that as you were moving through that phase? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the beautiful thing about um, the last 10-ish years for me being sober is that that's when all of this heavy life stuff happened, right? I found my wife in sobriety. She's in the mm-hmm. program. Uh, being there for my parents through long illnesses, mm-hmm. doing all I could, uh, plenty of regrets and things I wish I had done differently or been there more, but we all do. And and I had a shot to do all of that by being sober. But through my drinking, you know, I, I sort of at age 24, 25, when I first tried to stop, uh, I, I quickly became a binge drinker, not a daily drinker. And um, it was kind of hard for me to relate to others because the friends I would go out with didn't know what to do with me. I might be out drinking water with them for a year at a time. We were still in our 20s. I still tried to do social things, play softball where everybody drank at the games or go to happy hours after work. And, you know, sometimes by the time they showed up to the bar, I'd already had 15 drinks at three in the afternoon. And so <laughs> everyone was always walking on eggshells right. around me. And I was always, I guess the, the answer to your question is a little bit. I always didn't want to end up like my father. I always knew I would have to quit someday, but I was kind of my own pace car. I, I just, I just burnt bridges, right? There, in usually nothing terrible, not knock down, drag out fights. Just people didn't want to be around me, and I sensed it. I was very self aware, and so I just got to drinking alone at a pretty early age. It was the easiest way to control the damage. I like how you phrase that. I was my own pace car. All right, so let's use. You talked about your classic bottom, so let's let's go to the bottom there, uh, and that that involved your job. Anything so. Take me through that, kind of what the the stepping stones were into getting into Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. The typical court-ordered, I believe you should do these things, son. Right. You don't want to go to jail. Your higher power is the state. The cherry on that uh, crap Sunday when I got back to Ohio was I got a DUI as well. So besides losing the job and the girlfriend and being broke and embarrassment of living with my dad as an adult, I got a DUI. And so now I'm stuck in Ohio. The whole idea was to go there. Think about next moves, 
redeem myself, go to graduate school, get a real job, whatever, write the great American novel. And, and mostly what I did is, is drink, drink, not work, and then not even have a car, which is kind of tough living in Ohio. At least I lived in a city where I, I could do some stuff in walking distance. In retrospect, it was sort of freeing and fun, especially once I got some stretches of sobriety. So that DUI did lead to my first AA meeting. I was thinking about this this morning, but I didn't get a chance to share. I was in the men's meeting I go to on Saturday morning. And the guy who set the topic said, hey, let's talk about men who've, who've really had an impact on our sobriety. And of course, folks mentioned their fathers, they mentioned their sponsors, they mentioned other men who they're friends with in that program. There's a lot of long-term sobriety in that meeting. These guys, we all know each other really well. And I thought of those same people, but then I also thought of a couple people early on who I don't remember their name, and they certainly don't know me. We had a diversion program. I think a lot of states have this. This is what you did in Ohio. You could either go to jail for a few days for your first DUI, or you could go to this weekend thing, which was sort of a, a quick rehab. You watched all a bunch of videos about people not surviving car accidents, like the one you could have caused by drinking and driving, and got a little counseling, learned a little bit about alcoholism. And my thought was most people there just had bad luck couple more than they usually drank. Blood alcohol wasn't that high. They barely ran into the neighbor's fence with their car, and that's how they got arrested. <laughs> it was all this stuff, and I was embarrassed by my story, which was, which was luckily, I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't hurt myself the way I could have all those times I, I drove drunk, but it, there, it was an arrest, and I had a high blood alcohol content, and that's how I ended up here, and that's how I got assigned extra um, AA stuff. And so there was a guy there. I don't know why I trusted him. He was sort of the person screening everyone to see if they were going to get recommended for another outpatient rehab program and or AA meetings. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I just trusted this guy and I shared everything, including the depression, including the thoughts of suicide, including not just, oh, I knew I had a drinking problem when I drank, bad things happened and I did stupid stuff, but uh, what it felt like, what it felt like to, to hate myself and be ashamed of everything I was doing and to be so far away from the potential I had just a few years later that I was afraid to even leave the house. I just didn't want the world to see me and what I had become. And uh, he sort of said to me, he's like, well, son, I, I think you're the real deal. And I think you know that. I said, well, yeah, what do I do? Right. And that was the first time I sort of asked for help. Mm-hmm. And he sort of said, here's what you do. You're going to have to go to this program. Sorry, I have to. <laughs> You're going to go to this pe- program three times a, a week, which was basically sort of a more educational than outpatient mm-hmm. rehab. This is where they'll divert people who uh, are not going to jail for DUIs yet. And and then AA, and I had to go to meetings. And that first AA meeting I went to, mm-hmm. sorry, the story ended up being a, a little longer than I had planned. That's okay. The person who shared, I had all the same preconceived notions about AA that everybody does. Ah, it's a church basement, 20 old dudes smoking (laughs) cigarettes. I don't belong there. Not yet. You know, I was still 25 at the time. I'm too young. I'm I'm too whatever. And the person who shared was a a guy relatively young who talked about nearly falling out of a window, who talked about wetting the bed every night, who was wearing a suit and tie, was a lawyer. You know, clearly what I saw was a person who had very recently been where I was at that moment, Mm -hmm. which is I hate myself and I want to die. And doing whatever he did, whatever he was talking about, I'm sure it was good AA stuff. Mm -hmm. Here was a happy, joyous, and free, somewhat successful young man who had uh, seemingly defeated alcoholism or at least Mm -hmm. kept it in check. That's the way I was thinking about it at the time. So I wish I could say I, I acted upon that and I 
stayed in touch with the, the guy who assessed me or I talked to the guy after the meeting who shared. Uh, I probably signed my own name on, on that form for half of the 20 meetings I was supposed to go to and, and continued to, I got some time there. I got my first weeks strung together at least of not drinking mm-hmm. and started to feel better and started to get my, my act together and get my life together. But, but I didn't stop drinking. I didn't want to, I wanted to stop drinking, but I didn't want to do AA. And that was the long and the short of it. But those two people made me realize there's, there's hope. I knew what to do at that point if I did get desperate enough. The seed had been planted, right? All right, just a quick reminder here. We'll be continuing our conversation with Matt R. in a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you'll find uh, many other uh, episodes for your listening pleasure. I believe we probably have uh, somewhere between 30 and 35 at this point. Uh, you can also find the donate the donate button on the website, which you can utilize if you're moved to do such. Please keep in mind this podcast is funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our, through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Now back to Mr. Matt R. Okay, Matt. So you have this little bit of hope that has uh, uh, come into your life now. Uh, you've heard these two gentlemen share. Now take me from there. So I ended up going back to San Francisco. And so this would have been 99, right at the height of the first dot-com boom. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Got a job the second day I was there, and it took almost two months to find an apartment. You know, people were literally showing up. 30 people would show up to an apartment that was open with a check in <laughs> hand and a bottle of wine as a gift for the person showing the apartment. And so we're, I've seen that cycle boom and bust twice in my almost 20 years in San Francisco, and we're at the, the top of another cycle back there now. I don't think I can ever get back there. It's a good thing that I, I like Texas, so we're, we're happily stuck here right you're, now. You're here with the Flatlanders. That's right. It feels very homish midwestern to me from where i grew up maybe a little different from my my wife who grew up in california but we're digging it yeah i would say long story short those next 10 years where i, I got a little recovery i felt like i had a, a bottom I, I unfortunately kind of collected bottoms from there uh, that next 10 years was just a roller coaster where where as i described before people didn't know what to expect i would I would be totally fine, sober for four months, show up to work, not even smoking, eating healthy, lose weight, go into the gym, and then disappear for three days and miss work. And then it's kind of the spin dry cycle, I call it, because I went to rehab a number of times. I would just do enough to get someone off my back to uh, let my boss think that I was sincere and that I was going to be fine and I was going to be a good employee or to get my girlfriend back. I had an on and off relationship for nine years there. Uh, a fiance. We never got married, but fiance that became an ex right, right at the end of, of my drinking. And we tried to reconcile when I got sober, but it, it just didn't, didn't Nine end years. up working. Now, that's not the same one. That's a different girlfriend than the one you yes. were calling, right? Saying, you're still yes. my girlfriend. Okay, gotcha. Yes. I'm sort of a long-term monogamous. So I had my main college girlfriend who ended up tortured by me for my first couple of years of professional <laughs> drinking. And then, and then a, a, a decade where, where I... I um, that was one of the biggest amends I had to make. I mean, that was the person who was the first-hand witness to all my ridiculous. So, did that first girlfriend know you as like both a, a sober person before you started drinking, and then get to see the professional drinking on the front end? 
So the, the college girlfriend, no. She, she, she uh, knew what she was getting into. Okay. I don't think she knew, but she found out quickly <laughs> and, and, and for better or for worse, stuck around off and on for a number of years, but made a smart decision to kind of break it from there. And we remain good friends, both on Facebook and in the real world occasionally. So <laughs> that's, all, that's all fine. That's been managed well. Not so the, the second person who was my hostage in a 700-square-foot San Francisco apartment for the better part of nine years. There were plenty of good times. And I mean, that's another one, too, where I think the, the biggest problem aside from my, my, my drinking, obviously, was just the unpredictability of what you were going to get with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had managed to sell. I wanted to be a writer my whole life, and at some point in my mid-20s, sold my soul and became a finance guy. I happened <laughs> to be an editor at an investment bank. And so professionally, I took a turn to uh, becoming a stock analyst and was one of the junior guys, so I didn't quite become one of the, the people you see on TV before I went corporate. And I, I worked uh, with a number of Silicon Valley jobs in, in corporate finance, still what I do today. And so there was a point there where it looked like, whoa, this guy's going to come through it. Got some money saved and seems like a normal, successful guy going back to business school. Everything's kind of clicking. And then I could just, I could tear down two years of good, mostly clean living in a weekend. Right. And, and do all kinds of terrible stuff. And, and I also can't profess that I was clear-headed and kind for even those almost two-year stretches where I didn't drink, right? I was a, a white-knuckle not spiritually fit, not practicing, but alcoholic. Right. All right. So, um, all right. So you have that that those, those nine years there, and uh, and then okay. So so take me from there. We're getting closer to your sobriety date now. So kind of close the gap for me there, if you can. Sure. So really, at the end, there was there was the story we kicked it off with. Right? So summer of two thousand seven. It's those are some dark days. Uh, <laughs> One of the worst experiences of my life to this day that I remember so clearly is getting a haircut. It took me about a week to get everything cleaned up physically and mentally and work-wise and everything. I ended up back in rehab after that event. And and I remember finally saying, well, I better go get shave and get a haircut. And just sitting there for 15 minutes having to look at myself in the mirror. Really? At Supercuts or wherever I was. I, it was torture. I almost left. I almost walked out in the middle of the haircut. I was so disgusted with myself. Wow. And so that... Luckily, was a, a pretty deeply planted seed of, of desperation. Now, three, four, maybe five more times, I'd, I'd have a few months, I'd be good, and then, then I'd blow it up again. That next summer, the summer of 2008, uh, really probably should have been my sobriety date. I ended up having another bottom uh, involving drugs, in fact, involving some of the same people from the summer before. And gotcha. so imagine the shame involved about reaching back out and saying, well, I know they ripped me off last year, but I really want some of the the stuff that they have. And right. so eh, I can't find it anywhere else. Let's go ahead and call them. Correct. And a smaller version of the same thing happened. Right. And I ended up in the hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. And really, so the, from stress, basically, when you when you say you were having thinking you were having a heart attack, uh, drugs. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> God, there are drugs in my yeah, story. Yes. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. I just, Com- just making sure that I... of, of too much drinking and, and, and too much stuff inhaled. And so uh, I, I called an ambulance, called 911. I ended up in the hospital. Um, my, my. Did they take your blood? Did they know what it was all about once they took your blood? Well, I was, I was honest. Okay. I was honest, and, and I ended up discharging myself early, and the doctor was mad at me. And, and so I, and I never got anywhere, but. Uh, I would called my one friend who uh, had been sober, but had been more uh, recovering from depression, mental health issues. And, and he came and saw me in the hospital and I talked to him the next day and he said, you know, your choice, 
He's like, I'm either taking you to the hospital or I'm taking you to rehab. And I, I said, wow, rehab has never sounded so good. I, I, will, I will take rehab all day long <laughs> over a padded room. And then I started to do in my mind what I always did. I, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I, I tried to go to rehab nine different times. And every time I'd go, I'd have the conversation. And they'd say, you need to be here for 30 days. And I'd say, nah, I have a job. Right. I have a girl. I'm doing this. Let's do that outpatient thing. Yeah, let's not overreact and go to 30 days as a treatment, exactly. right? Exactly. I don't want to commit to anything. And, <laughs> you know, for the first time I was so beaten down, I just said, whatever. I don't care if I lose my job. I, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. I probably already lost my job. Whatever. Let's go. And, and, and that got me uh, going on, on, on the right direction. And I met some friends that I still have in sobriety to this day. Can't tell you that was the last time I drank. Four, four months later. Mm-hmm. That was uh, the Thanksgiving-ish weekend of 2008. My sobriety date is December 1st, December. Mm-hmm. 2008. So I had one more night that was uh, luckily contained to one night without a whole lot of collateral damage, just mm-hmm. uh, some personal shame and some texts I regret. But you know, for me, that's a very manageable <laughs> amount of damage. And, and then that was it. And that was it. And that was around the time that my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And soon after that, I started a new job. That relationship ended for good. All kinds of change. I can't say I was happy the first two years. I I dealt with a lot of depression and anxiety the first two years of of my continuous sobriety that I have now. Mm -hmm. But everything was better. Even the depression. I mean, everything got better. Even the sadness just started to to get more and more tolerable the longer I, I stayed sober. And the more I got into AA, the more I... I got through the steps and, and was trying to live 10, 11, and 12 every day. Yeah, so let's talk about the mm-hmm. steps of going through those and your experience with working through, you know, uh, 1 through 12 and, you know, who took you through them. And why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. The reason I spent 10 years kind of going in and out and, and not staying sober and not being spiritually fit is I never got a sponsor. Mm-hmm. If I had to pick one thing, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it had been suggested all the way back to that guy I talked to in Ohio after the DUI. I know people... My mom was a professional in this space. I don't think I've mentioned. So she worked in, in drug, uh, alcohol abuse, mental health, and, and all in, uh, in the county setting. So she was a social worker for a while and then a grant writer and an administrator for many years. And so I knew about this stuff. I knew what I was supposed to be doing mm-hmm. before I ever even tried to stop drinking. And I finally, after 10 years of, of interviewing people quietly without them knowing it, <laughs> finally picked a guy who just said during his share at my rehab place that he liked the Grateful Dead and he liked to drink outside. <laughs> I said, well, I like the Grateful Dead. I'd love to drink outside. This is my guy. And uh, he still always jokes. He said, hey, whatever. Whatever it took to make you right. finally talk to someone after the meeting. Right. I mean, literally, it was probably the first meeting uh, out of the... 50 to 75 I had gone to at that point in my life that I actually went up and and stayed after a meeting and talked to a person. Mm -hmm. And I had been cajoled into it by the people at the rehab place, of course, but I mean, I had made a living out of hearing what I wanted to hear in meetings and running out the door. Sometimes you hear in beginners meetings, you know, when when were you drinking? That's when you should be in a meeting. And I was a guy who was drinking every three or four months. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, awesome. I, get, I need to go to one meeting every three or four months. I'm cool. Mm-hmm. That's what I would hear, mm-hmm. not get a sponsor, 90 and 90, right. work the steps. Right. All that stuff was said, I'm sure, at every meeting I ever went to. that <laughs> I heard is like, cool, I need, to, I need to pop in here every three or four months, and I'm fine. We hear what we want to hear sometimes, yeah. and we see what we want to see. Yeah. So luckily, that, that guy who seemed really laid back and like the Grateful Dead was very serious about AA, remained so, <laughs> a little less serious than he was. Uh, now that he's had some kids and is in a different phase of his recovery, but you know we were out 
a one, two, and three was done in five minutes on our knees, third step mm-hmm. prayer, and I'm right in the fourth step. And, and I thank God for that because otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Right. If he was one of those folks who was like, go think about the first step for a couple of weeks and call me back, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been back. Right. I wouldn't have been back. Yeah. And so the, the fourth step to me was very cathartic. I kept wanting to hate myself. That was the resentment I had, right? I, I was trying to figure out, and I even asked him, where am I? On this, like these people, I'm really not mad at them. I know what I'm supposed to do, so I know why they're there, and that's fine. But I hate me. I, they actually didn't do anything to me. This is all my fault. It's all the shame. And he said, "Hey, that's not what we do here. That's what's different. That's mm-hmm. why you're going to be better. And just trust me. Just keep going." Mm-hmm. And then the fifth step with him was, and I ended up doing a couple with him over the years. Those were the two best feeling moments of my non-drinking, non-drugging life. Mm-hmm. And for those of you, and there's going to be some people out there who may not know what a fifth step is because this goes out to all areas of the world and such. And I just want people to know that the fifth step is, uh, um, oh gosh, I just blanked, uh, uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So, it's, uh, I don't know, you, you can describe it. A fifth step is when you sit down with somebody and you basically go through an inventory, right? Yeah. Basically told uh, a good chunk of my story over a uh, probably a three-ish hour period. The first one I did, my, my friend had an apartment right off Haight-Ashbury in, in San Francisco, and I'll, I'll always remember mm. what was going on in there, what the inside of the apartment looked like, what the neighborhood looked like. The, the fact, a lot of people say their sponsors fall asleep when they do their fifth step or, you know, aren't impressed. Yeah. <laughs> He's still a good friend. He was in our wedding when we got married. He read at our wedding, and you know he was a great listener. He shared a few things about himself, and then I went home and and reflected quietly, and you know, did steps right. six and seven, and, and did that in a very small space in San Francisco with the the woman I hate a, a very short distance uh-huh. away from me, and in that seven hundred square yeah. feet, I was I was in a bubble. I was in a good little bubble. I mean, I felt spiritually okay for the first time I can remember. Gotcha. Well, that's fantastic. So, and you know, and, and you said you work 10, 11, 12. So I, I want to move a little bit forward too. And to, I know that you are. So, when did you meet your current wife in sobriety? I'm mm-hmm. interested in that as well. Sure, sure, sure. For the record, right up front, I want to say I, I saved her life. So, yeah, <laughs> she might, if she were here, she might dispute that. But uh, what, what happened was that that last stint I had yeah. uh, doing rehab um, and, 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 I was in for a month. And so I got close with the people there and, and ended up good friends with a woman that was in that facility with me. And she knew my future wife from AA. My future wife had been in AA and, and she's a few years younger than me. So she was very young at the time. She was 25 trying to get sober. And um, this woman said, oh, you know, you guys should meet, you know, a little bit of an age difference, but I think you guys have a lot in common. You would get along well. And, and so we actually met and, didn't really date right away. She was ending something. I was ending something. Uh, we ended up seeing each other about a month later at, at a New Year's party, and we, we hung out the whole time. We did hit it off. We decided to start seeing each other. And uh, it, it ended up not working out. After a month, we were done. She was still drinking. And so that was oh. that was the way we were actually set up. Like, oh, yeah, that can well, throw she was in the program. She's actually drinking now. And I'm like, what are you doing to me? <laughs> This isn't going to work. And she's sort of like, well, I think it'll be good for my friend to be with you. But what about me? It's going to kill me. So, I'm newly sober here. Uh, So what happened was we sort of, we we, we just, you know, agreed to not hang out anymore. And and then probably another month later, I get a call from her, my my future wife saying, hey, 
not doing too well. Would you meet me at a meeting? And so I went over to where she was living on the other side of town in San Francisco. And we went to a meeting and she didn't look very good. And I brought her to a meeting I usually go to. And I sort of, I didn't know what to do with her. First of all, I felt like every woman at the meeting was looking at me like, hey, dude, what are you doing praying on this, right, this right. newcomer? And I said, here, friend of mine, female friend of mine, this is a potential sponsee, you take her. And I tried to remove myself from the situation, but she yeah. took to sobriety her second time through just magnificently. She was all over it. She worked the steps. It ended up being kind of competitive between the two of us. You know, <laughs> right. She was a new, full-force, hardcore sponsor who we're, we're still great family friends with to this day. We're going, her and her husband are in the program. We're all going to Hawaii together. Oh, here very nice. And so months. how long were you sober at that time? About when, two years. About two years? Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And so... Uh, she ended up getting sober from that. So I always remind her when she says, right. hey, you know, if you could so you finish up the dishes. Like, remember that time I saved your life? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that's, I'm actually not allowed to do that anymore. It's right, not, it's not yeah. even funny when it's um, just the two of us at right. home. So, so that's why I have to uh, I'm sure you've worn time. out the welcome on yeah. that joke. <laughs> but it was great, especially when we lived in the Bay Area and we bought our first house together down in the, in the suburbs after a couple years being together in San Francisco. We went to a lot of meetings together there. That's not the case here. We sort of have a different schedule, and I work in a different place from she works at home. So we have different groups that we go to here. But And if I'm not mistaken, there was a beautiful young child that came out of this yes. union. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully... What, a just one? practicing alcoholic? Is, yes. is that one? Yeah, another future practicing alcoholic. <laughs> I well, look at her in the way she chugs water out of the bottle. I'm just like, oh, oh man, you're one of us. <laughs> and so, yeah. how old is she now? Yeah, so she's nine months. Not, wow, wow. Just yeah. uh, uh, newborns. Yeah. But she's been in the room. She goes with my wife every now and then to the women's meetings. And yeah. So she's getting exposed to it. We're, we're negotiating about whether there's going to be a number two or not in the near future. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> a little we're negoti- busy with the first one. <laughs> A little negotiation, I'm sure. You know, and uh, kind of as a uh, side note, the the we recently released a uh, a podcast on an experience that uh, me and my family had. Just recently, we went to uh, Crested Butte. Have you ever heard of oh, yeah, uh, Crested sure. Butte? I haven't Colorado? been there, but yeah. Okay, so anyway, now that you're getting a family and all that sort of stuff, it's you know, it's not just for families, oh, yeah. but. Uh, um, some you may want to consider at the end of, end of next uh, July. It was it was an absolutely fantastic experience. All right, so um, all right, anything else you want to add, or we're, uh, before we wrap up here, is there anything that's uh, important to you? Oh, let me put it this way: share from your experience. If there's somebody out there who's listening to this, and they're brand new sobriety or they're considering getting in the program or they have struggled with uh, going in and out of AA or any sort of other 12-step mm-hmm. program. Why don't you share your experience in terms of what, people always ask you this, right? But what was it that finally made that, What? what how come it finally clicked within your head? Are you able to somehow put some words around that or, or articulate it? In a nutshell, I got a sponsor and worked the steps. I, I, I did for many years not do that in AA, and I don't suggest that approach. And, and probably what led to that was just finally getting desperate enough to be open to suggestions. You know, Some people are like that right when they come into AA, no matter how bad the bottom, and, and other folks like me are slow learners. And the other thing I would say is, you can't do it wrong and you can't change the way you've done it. I spent a lot of time feeling bad about beating myself up for not staying sober. Right. And that's just, 
not productive. That's another thing my sponsor always encouraged me to share. He said, every time you share in a meeting, it should come out of your mouth that it took you 10 years to string together the sobriety you have now. Right. Because you're not the only one. Yeah, and people have a tendency to think that they're the only ones sitting in there that aren't going to get it. And, you know, and I, I was three years in and out myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always used to think, you know, there's that line and how it works. It says, you know, there are some of us who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves. And I thought... <laughs> I'm that guy, mm-hmm. right? You I know that the same I'm, thing, right? It's kind of, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad they put it in the book, you know, and, and I get it. But I'm also, I can remember thinking, that's me, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm just one of the the unfortunate few that are that is not going to be able to grasp this thing. Yeah. I'm going to die this way. Yeah. Well, good. All right, Matt. Well, listen, man, it has been fantastic. Thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Uh, And uh, I'm sure we will talk to you soon. See you around, okay? God bless. Thanks. Take care.